Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I remember uh, growing up, there were a few times when my dad um, interrupted the song service. Maybe a couple of you remember that as well. Um, it can be a little awkward when you're a young man and your dad interrupts the song service and uh, you're not sure what exactly he's going to do or say. But the times that I remember him uh, standing up to interrupt the song service uh, were usually centered around when there seemed to be a disconnect between the theology of the song and the, the heart of God's people as they were singing. And I think the disconnect um, he was evaluating was just the tone, the behavior, the, what, what he, whether he was right or wrong, um, judged as uh, a too casual approach to the words that were being sung. Uh, over the years, I have wondered a little bit about doing that myself a time or two. I've never been bold enough to do it because uh, I don't want to stand in evaluation or judgment of someone's emotions or thoughts never felt particularly led to do it. But I do uh, think that you should think about the words of the songs that we sing as you sing them. Um, not the least of which because the Bible says that when two or more are gathered together, then the Lord is there as well. And that um, when we sing, we're not singing to an invisible sky God. We're singing to the, the all-knowing, ever-present God. And many of the songs we sing are not merely about God, but they are also um, about us. And certainly the song that we were singing there is about us. I'm going to ask if we can just keep singing that one uh, for the next few weeks. Nathan. Um, think about the chorus of that. Savior, you showed your love, you know, defeated our sin, poured out your blood. So we praise you, lamb that was slain. Which is appropriate because of all that we're here for today. Not merely the Lord's Supper, but certainly including the Lord's Supper. When we consider the Lamb that was slain. You know, so we praise you, Lamb that was slain, and then we offer our lives to proclaim what a Savior. Now there's a sense in which you could hear that. We offer our lives to proclaim and sort of let yourself off the hook rather easily. Say, well, what we're singing is we offer our lives uh, in order to proclaim that Jesus is a great Savior. And so throughout the course of our lives, we're going to make sure we take time to proclaim that. Jesus saves. But that is, is not actually the theology behind a Christian's commitment to, to God. Um, nor is it appropriate. And that really drives us uh, to what we're thinking about now. Now, when we have been talking about spiritual gifts for the last few weeks, uh, you could be forgiven for thinking that this is kind of just a, a side topic in the Christian faith. Because if you've been around the church for a long time, as I have, as many of you have, we've heard of spiritual Holy Spirit things before. And we know that there are, are big showy spiritual gifts that other churches seem to have a different understanding of than, than we do. But then there are the more 
common, if I can use that word, spiritual gifts uh, that you see in a person's life commingled with the fruit of the Spirit that you see in a person's life. And if, you, if you're unfamiliar with the fruit of the Spirit, it's the kind of attributes in a Christian that the Spirit of God begins to produce when a person is saved. And they're in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, my mom, uh, being the woman that she was, none of this who, uh, will surprise those of you who know my mom, had my brother and I and a whole group of little children memorize them in the form of a song when we were young. Uh, but I did memorize them, so well done, uh, Mom. Uh, but in Galatians 5, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, uh, and we think, well, we know a bit about the Holy Spirit and about the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are supposed to be shared among all Christians, love chiefly among them, as we will see in 1 Corinthians 13. And we know there are some other things that we should probably be taught about from time to time. But mostly, we just need to be making sure that we're seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And aside from that, we don't need much in-depth study on the topic. And as I said at the beginning of that long paragraph... You could be forgiven for kind of approaching the subject as if it's almost like a side topic. Because in some places it certainly feels a bit like a side show. We could be forgiven for thinking, it's not important that we understand this or that we agree on it. Um, we should be taught it in the course of the scriptures from time to time, but it's not, it's not tangibly relevant to our Christian lives unless we're in some sort of discussion or argument about it. And this morning, what I hope to settle on before we take the Lord's Supper is just the understanding that you cannot separate the Spirit of God and the work of the Spirit of God in a Christian's life from the gospel, and faith in Jesus. You can't separate those two things. Um, so let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll read verses 4 through 11. Paul writes, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities or works. But it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit, that is the, the, the visible show of the Spirit, the demonstration of the Spirit, is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. 
And that last phrase is what we will key in on and consider this morning, as he wills. Um, so, the first week we talked about spiritual gifts, we tried to just lay a groundwork of what spiritual <coughs> gifts are and aren't. And I think we were pretty thorough in that. Then last week when we were talking about spiritual gifts, we talked about Jesus and how the Holy Spirit of God testifies about Jesus and anyone claiming that they have had some spiritual experience and their takeaway from that spiritual experience is to say things that are not true about Jesus is wrong, either lying or deceived themselves, but wrong. Because as Jesus says in John, the Spirit testifies of me, and he will tell you true things of me. This week, we'll consider spiritual gifts distributed to us as God chooses. Now, you might have noticed that there was a long list of spiritual gifts in the middle of those verses. It ends in verse 10. It looks like it begins in verse 8. And we're not going to spend time this morning distinguishing between those. That will come. Um, but it is interesting the ones Paul chooses. He seems to choose some that would be very common, uh, some that would not be showy, as you might say, and others that would be very showy. And he puts them all together. And when he puts all of them together in this verse, in this listing, I don't think he's trying to say that they're all the same and they're all working the same because he's going to go on in this chapter to describe how some are in fact very different from the others. And those of you who are familiar with 1 Corinthians 12, just to kind of refresh the mind or whet the appetite, this is the whole analogy of, you know, the body has many different members and some parts are the parts that everyone sees and some parts are the part that, 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 that uh, everyone doesn't see. And so he's not saying all these spiritual gifts are the same or get used the same way or are for the same purpose. But he puts them together nevertheless here and we must ask why does he put them together in one list? It's because there is one Holy Spirit distributing them all. So in that sense they all go together. They all fall under a category of Gifts from the one Holy Spirit of God. And you'll notice it's on the heels of that. There is one God, one Lord, you know. There's, there's, there's one Spirit. And this one Spirit gives all these different kinds of gifts and he just chooses a sampling. That's not an exhaustive list. There are different lists and different gifts, but it is a sampling of spiritual gifts. Certainly ones that in Corinth they would have been familiar with. Because some of them are pretty big and bold. But in giving the sampling, he concludes in verse 11, One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So God chooses who gets what sort of spiritual gifting and to what extent they get that spiritual gifting. God chooses. Individually, he chooses. He doesn't say, ah, this group over here will do this, and this group over here will do this. Men will do this, and women will do this. Children will do this, and adults. No, no, no. It's, it, there's no groups in the verse. It's God has an individual relationship, a unique fellowship with every Christian. If you're a Christian here today, truly a Christian, God 
the one God of all creation has an individual relationship with you. And he gifts you by the power of his Holy Spirit. Not natural gifts. We're not talking about natural abilities here. That was week one of this study. Natural gifts are great. Natural gifts are, can be interesting. They can be useful. But that's not what we're talking about. When we talk. We're not talking about somebody's ability to stand and, and speak and entertain people for a long time. Uh, God uniquely and individually gifts his children whom he knows for the profit of all. Did you catch that in the verses? For the profit of all. Verse 7. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. God has brought you into his family, Christian, and I'm speaking only to the Christian here. Now you are a member of his family. He knows you individually as a father. And through his Holy Spirit, he blesses you specifically that you might function and operate in the family of God to the entire family's benefit. So it's an interesting dynamic in that God's relationship with you is individual, but his call in your life is collective. Can you see that? Do you understand what I mean by that? His gifting, his relationship, his knowledge of you is individual. I look out at the faces in the room today. Some of you I have an individual relationship with. Others, not so much of one. For any number of different reasons. But God's relationship with his family is not like that. God knows each of you individually. And while he knows you and gifts you individually, his call in your life is in the family, in the collective, in the group. And he is raising you and training you for that purpose. He is equipping you for that purpose. If you think then of the great models of the Jewish faith in the Old Testament, it strikes me sometimes how different those models are from the role models that are put before us today. And we're not Jewish, at least to my knowledge, I'm not Jewish, maybe you are. We didn't grow up in some deep Jewish tradition other than what we have from God's Word if we grew up in the church. My heroes and the people that I looked up to and role models were a very diverse group of people depending on who I was paying attention to at the time. But in the scriptures, we have role models, people who served God with all their heart, people whom God used. And I think sometimes, because of background and who we are, we look at those people and we say, yes, we believe in the historicity of those people. They were real people. Yes, it's amazing what they did. But we don't think of them as models for a variety of reasons. We're too disconnected sometimes. In other words, they were great people who did X. I am not great person who does Y. And so our role models become different. But this is certainly not the intent of the scriptures. We're given these people for a reason. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that we're to consider their lives carefully. 
to think of them as models of faith and to see what faith does in a person's life. And there are three that I want you to think about this morning as we think about this topic. Three from the Old Testament. The first one is Joseph. Now you remember Joseph if you have read through the book of Genesis. If you haven't, Joseph is a great story uh, towards the end of the book of Genesis. Okay, about 50 chapters in Genesis. His is the, the, really the last story in the book of Genesis. And Joseph was one of the sons of Israel. One of the, becomes, you know, one of the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel representatives actually begins to represent two different tribes because Joseph himself has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But I won't get into all the history of it here, but what you might remember about Joseph is that he had a coat of many colors. And some of us are wearing clothes of many colors here today. Um... Chris, I think yours is the traditional Joseph depiction, right? If, not to draw attention to Chris, but if, 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 you, you know, if you've seen the picture of Joseph in his coat of many colors and like coloring books, they're like some kind of striped colored coat, right? Which for us, we're like, that, okay, big deal, you know? But we're told in the course of the story that it was a symbol of his father's faith. Sorry, Chris, I didn't mean to draw attention to you. I, 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 I kind of did, but kind of didn't. Not in a bad way. We're told that this coat is a demonstration of God's of his father's favor in his life. And we know the story, you know, he, he, you can imagine growing up feeling like, you know, my father is an important person. We have a very large, you know, family. We are uh, worshipers of the one true God and I am an important person in my household. You might argue the most important person. And Joseph even has dreams about how this might play out in his life. And he grows up, we can assume, I think we're meant to assume, with a certain expectation for his life. He almost sounds braggy or, or kind of boastful or prideful when he tells his brothers, who are all older brothers, the, the ideas that he has about how God will use him. And he tells these stories about how his brothers will one day serve him and bow down. And if you've ever had an older brother, you can imagine that probably didn't go over very well. Uh, and the story says it doesn't. And so they conspire to uh, sell him into slavery and they're all accomplices to some degree in this. One gets off a little bit better than the others, but even he's an accomplice in the whole thing. And they lie to their father, Jacob, Israel, and Joseph, whose life really seems secure, who had reason to feel very positive about his role in the family, now finds himself a slave and in a caravan to Egypt where he's sold into slavery in Egypt. And... You can imagine the turmoil of that. I won't psychoanalyze Joseph, but simply the first act of being sold into slavery by your own family would be one element. Then living the life of a slave would be another. Then being falsely accused of sexual assault, another to live with, as Potiphar's wife has him, you know, thrown in prison. And then two years in prison. I don't know much about Egyptian prisons, but my imagination doesn't paint a positive picture of that. And you see Joseph going through all of this, and eventually he emerges uh, victorious on the other side, which we got to talk about a little bit in Sunday school uh, this morning in, in the youth Sunday school class, but as he emerges, what is the great profession of faith from Joseph at the other side of it? You know, he tells his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And he, he is at peace with what God has done in his life and how God has used him. And he is 
served God in a, in a unique way that he would have never chosen for himself. I mean, if you had told Joseph at the beginning, uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, the traditional Christian trope, God has a wonderful plan for your life. If you had told him that, and you just would have skipped to the end, you're going to be, you know, in charge of all of Egypt, and you're going to save your entire family, and you're going to be a hero in Egypt, and you're going to have wealth, and, and it's going to be amazing, you know. Uh, that would have been intriguing. You just have to be okay with being sold into slavery, and uh, spending time in prison, and being separated from your father for the majority of your life, and not seeing your family and relatives, and going without, you know, a wife and children for the majority of your life, till towards the end, and on and on and on, and you're thinking, what? <laughs> I don't know that Joseph would have chosen that. So clearly there's a pattern that begins to emerge in the life of Joseph, of God using his people in service to the collective by pulling them out individually for a purpose that will serve them all, but in serving them, it will require great sacrifice. And God does not, by the way, stop to explain himself as these people are going through these times. We do not see an angel or a prophet show up to Joseph when he's falsely accused of sexual abuse and thrown into prison saying, hey, don't worry about this, everything's going to be okay. Let me explain what, what God is doing. You don't see that. You see a similar thing happen in Moses' life. And because we're a little more familiar with Moses, I'll just avoid a lot of the backstory. But we know he was raised with kind of a princely upbringing in Egypt, in the land of Egypt. And we also know from the Bible, not so much from all the cartoons, but from the Bible we know that Joseph in his upbringing all the way through his upbringing, saw the possibility that God would use him in a way to rescue his people from Egypt. Moses saw that. Moses saw that potential. And Moses begins to act on that potential and finds himself uh, widely known for covering up a murder in the land of Egypt. And runs for his life into the wilderness. And all of a sudden, this man who thought he was raised for a great purpose to serve God's people, finds himself for 40 years shepherding sheep on the backside of a mountain in the wilderness. 40 years! Just by a show of hands, I guess this is a little self-serving, but just raise your hand if you're younger than 40 years old. My hand is up. <laughs> Allison, it, oh, I'm sorry. My, <laughs> Norm, Norm, you're lying in the back. <laughs> 40 years is a long time. Again, I'm not interested in psychoanalyzing Moses. But this is a sharp and distinct left turn from the upbringing he thought he was headed to. From the plan of God he thought he was meant to exercise. Forty years he has his own wandering in the wilderness and then when he is old 
When he has a wife and children and he has a family and he spent 40 years out there, God sends him back to Egypt to do some version of what he thought he was going to do when he was a much younger man. And it is so foreign to him. He has so resigned himself to this life. He's so put away all of those ambitions. He doesn't even want to go. <laughs> he doesn't even want to go. And of course God, as he does, compels him to go. And he has this incredible experience in Egypt. And we won't get into it, but all of the plagues and all of how God is just amazingly working to do this thing he had the ambition to experience. And they get out of Egypt and they get into the wilderness and on their way to the promised land and what happens? The people reject God in various ways on various occasions, culminating in their refusal to just cross over the water and go in. They make it all the way through the wilderness and they get to the river, the Jordan River, that they're supposed to go over and go in and they say, no, <laughs> we're not going in. <laughs> and they spend 40 years on the other side of that river waiting to go in. And who but Moses spends the entire 40 years with them there? Another 40 years in the wilderness. And unlike Joseph's story, where you see Joseph emerge, kind of, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Moses dies in the wilderness without even walking in. That is how God used Moses individually for the service of all. And Elijah, the prophet, has a similar experience. And we can be much more brief here, but Elijah, a prophet of God, who served God faithfully during the kingdom, the kingdom period in Israel. This is after David. This is after Solomon. Elijah served God faithfully. And all he wanted was for the people of God to stop worshiping idols and worship the one true God again. That's all he wanted. He didn't want a big house or a family. None of those things are expressed. He turned some of it away. All the prophet of God wants is to see revival among the people of God so that they stop worshiping idols. This is during the time of Ahab and Jezebel and the Baals. And they just worship God. And here God gives Elijah power to do miraculous things. And all of Israel becomes familiar with these miraculous things that he does. And it culminates in this unbelievable showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. <laughs> and without recounting the whole story, in one supernatural act, Fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifices that, that are strewn all over these altars, and the prophets of Baal are judged and destroyed by this miraculous work of God, and Elijah emerges victorious in the company of all of God's people. And not to psychoanalyze Elijah... But in the midst of that, he might be forgiven for thinking, everything I have worked for, the repentance of God's people, the rejection of these idols whom God has just clearly judged, 
Everything I have worked for, what I've spent my life for is going to come to pass now. The people are going to repent and they're going to serve God. And that doesn't happen. Instead, he has to run for his life because Jezebel has put the army after him and made him a wanted man. And it's not just in his imagination that the people have rejected God. When he gets to the mountain of God and God speaks to him, he says, God, God's words, not everyone has rejected me. I still have 7,000. 7,000 in all the land of Israel. Elijah did not spend his life with the hopes that 7,000 people would serve God. Not to you and I. That's a big number. That's like three and a half new parishes. That's a big number. Yeah, yeah, all right. Doing pretty good. Elijah was on a different scale, man. His ministry was on a different scale. He's serving to see the repentance of millions. And he doesn't seem to emerge victorious. Joseph kind of does. But Moses and Elijah don't. And this is where it becomes very difficult to separate spiritual gifts and serving God and serving God's people from the gospel itself. Faith that saves a person is faith that lives in a person's life. I'll say that again. Faith that saves a Christian is faith that lives in a person's life. Now, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 12, I want you to see this. What I'm driving at, in case it's, it's being missed, is becoming a Christian means serving God as God chooses. Not as you choose. Now, here is... The most common, I think, passage of Scripture for considering this. And, and the first two verses are going to be so familiar, you could probably say them in your head as I read them. But we're not going to stop at just two verses. I just want to read through verse 8. Okay, so here we are. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now that is in contrast to the dead animal sacrifices of the ancient world. Our bodies, meaning more than just our feelings, but our actual lives, what we do with our hands, our bodies, present them as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Again, what makes that reasonable? This is ground we've covered before. What did we sing about? Jesus Christ has poured out His blood for us. Right? This is what we mean when we say, you know, we offer our lives to proclaim that Jesus is a Savior. That's Romans 12. You know? We offer our lives, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Savior, you showed your love, defeated our sin, poured out your blood, so we praise you. Therefore, because of that, we praise you 
We offer our lives to proclaim. You see, hear the theology in what we sing. Make sure you believe that. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Conformed to this world means falling in line with them. If you have entered a phase of your life where your goals and ambitions and entertainments and objectives have pretty much fallen in line with the kinds of goals and ambitions and objectives that the world sets up for themselves, you are out of line with Romans 12 here. Your goals and ambitions and objectives are meant to be surrendered to God as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Your life is committed to Him if you're a Christian. You have laid down goals and ambitions and objectives to serve God because of what Jesus has done. Now, you need to think about that for a second and ask yourself if that's what you are actually experiencing right now in your life. And this is not just Paul or Reggie, by the way. This is the same thing Jesus says. You remember the dialogue of Jesus when he says, what king goes to war with an inferior army against another king? What builder sets out to build a structure and doesn't think about the material that's going to be required when he goes to build it? And then Jesus' words, count the cost. We should not think that becoming a follower of Jesus, which is the context of those words of Jesus, follow me. We should not think that being a follower of Jesus is simply an emotional experience or a personal conviction or an intellectual belief or a resolve to behave better. That is not how Jesus describes this adventure. In fact, he warns people, count the cost. Because following me is going to cost you everything. Are you ready to pay that price? The only kind of sane person who would answer in the affirmative is a person who believes in what Jesus has done for them and believes in the promises that Jesus has made to them. The only kind of person who would be willing to surrender their life now to Jesus' service is the kind of person who believes that what Jesus has promised about our life eternally is true. That's it. Otherwise, you're a lunatic. If you don't believe the promises of Jesus about eternity, what kind of a crazy person would surrender the life we have now? Now look, in the same Romans 12, I'm just going to read them. We're not even going to talk about them. You'll get the, the point right away. Look at verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, 
all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. It's about spiritual gifts. This is not some side topic that you can disconnect from what it means to be a Christian. In Romans, if you know anything about Romans, you know Paul has just spent the first 11 chapters trying to explain what the gospel is. How someone gets saved, what it means to be saved. That's the first 11 chapters. Then we hit chapter 12. So, <laughs> because of what we now know about the gospel, it is reasonable that a Christian should present their lives for service and the pivot to spiritual gifts because that is how a Christian is meant to serve. Sometimes, when we evaluate whether or not we're really serving the Lord, we give all kinds of answers. Yeah, I'm serving the Lord because I do A or because I do B or because I do C. Now, I am not the judge of A, B, or C in your life. But if you are serving the Lord faithfully, then you are seeing the Spirit of God work in that service to the prophet, that's 1 Corinthians 12 language, of all of God's people. That's what Christian service looks like. So you can't say, I can't say, well, I'm a, I'm a good Christian servant because I try to be a good boss at work and there are Christians that work there. Okay, all right. You're not allowed to judge me and say, no, your work is not some Christian service. But if I make that claim, I have to come face to face with the reality that if that's true, then the Spirit of God is gifting me and working in me individually, powerfully in demonstrable ways to the people around me who are Christians to the benefit of God's body. Because that's what the Holy Spirit of God does. He gifts us individually for the profit of the body. If you then look at your life and you say, I don't see God's Spirit doing anything in me. I don't feel like I'm being used by God in any spiritual way. I don't think I'm really benefiting the body of Christ. Then you have to answer to why that is. I don't have to answer for why that is. I'm certainly not trying to point at you and tell you that you're doing a bad job. I have no idea. That's way outside of my bounds. But you have to answer as to why that is. Oftentimes people say, I just don't know how, what my spiritual gifts are. And it leads them to those tests that I talked about the first time. A great way to discover what your spiritual gifts are is to start serving the Lord in the body of Christ with all your heart and seeing how God's Holy Spirit begins to work through that service for the benefit of God's body. That's a great way to see it. You don't have to have defined all of your spiritual gifts out before you can be of any use as a Christian. But you do have to be willing to offer your life as a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service. And the Spirit of God will then work through that service in your life. And when it works, you will experience joy because you will see people impacted by that in ways that you didn't anticipate. You didn't even think you were a part of until the other side of it, until the end of it. 
And that is a powerful thing. Turn to John 21 and we'll close there. As we consider this living sacrifice subject, um, there's a pastor who has a wonderful saying about this idea of a living sacrifice. Just a wonderful saying and, and it, you can think about it if you want. Decide if you think it's wonderful or not. But when he talks about the living sacrifice, he says this, the difference between a living sacrifice and an animal sacrifice is that an animal sacrifice, once it's offered, dies. It dies, which seems self-explanatory. You offer an animal sacrifice, it dies. The problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. That's kind of funny, right? But it's also kind of true. One of the challenges for Christian life is we will wrestle with our flesh and the temptation to forsake a sacrificial life of service to God and embrace some in between. Where we're no longer sacrificially offering ourselves to God fully, but we're crawling after career or after family or after entertainment or after wealth or riches or money or whatever it is because that's who we are. We're human beings in the flesh. You have to be dealing with that in your life. You're to present your bodies as a living sacrifice day by day. And if you are failing at that, if you have failed at that, praise God in the wisdom of his scriptures that his mercies are new to us every morning. There is a simple solution for the Christian who has wandered off the altar Confess your sin before the Lord and climb back onto the altar and offer the Lord your life for service and begin again. Just begin again. There's no penance you have to pay, no priest you have to confess to. Go to the Lord with a humble heart and an honest admission and serve Him again with all your heart. Now here we see a great example of that in John 21. And we'll close here. And I'm sorry it's long. But I'm not really sorry it's long. I've cut all sorts of things out. For instance, somebody gave me a Diet Coke this week. And I didn't even mention it at the beginning of service. If you have no idea you weren't here last week. Or maybe you don't remember. But, but I want you to get this picture. Okay, this is Peter on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter, James, John, the disciples now wonder... What do we do now? <laughs> and after waiting around for a little while, they say, let's go fishing. And for us, that sounds like a great time killer. Uh, Ryan invited me fishing yesterday. I said, sure, let me just cancel on this best man stuff with Matt's wedding and I'll be on my way. And so, uh, but fishing, fun, right? Not just fun for the disciples. This was their prior profession. These are men crawling off the altar. <laughs> Because what do we do now? And they're crawling off the altar and they're going back to fishing. You know what? You know how far Jesus lets them get off the altar? Not very. They're out there in the boat and, and you know, Jesus has another one of those, you know, put your nets out again and they, call, they get a whole bunch of fish and then they, they immediately know who it is that's on the shore because they weren't sure at first and Peter jumps out of the boat to swim to the shore which I don't see how that's faster than just simply taking the boat back but... He gets to shore and then you know Jesus says let's eat breakfast which is kind of metaphorical because you know what they do for breakfast? They kill the fish that they've been out there and, and then they're eating breakfast together and 
there's this tension. Because if you remember at the crucifixion, Peter has denied Christ. And now he's crawling off the altar. The Lord did not, he, Jesus told him this. I didn't, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He does not, he did not call Peter to go fish. For a, This is not Peter's job. And then here's this interchange in verse 15. Look at this. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And I don't think he means the other disciples. I think he means the fish. You can decide for yourself. If the Lord was going to show up and ask you that question today, what would he say to you? What would he be talking about? Marty... Son of Carl. You know, do you love me more than these? What would he say to you? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then he said to him, Feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now feed my sheep is a call to pastoral work, not fishing. And for Peter, that's what he was called to. And that's what he was avoiding. And we say, well, why was he avoiding that? And now we get to the crux of it in verse 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. How many of you have a, that testimony about your younger life? I don't want to hyper-spiritualize it, but it's true. When you're young, you just do whatever you want, whatever you feel like, and you give little thought to very much of it at all, and you feel like you're in control of your life. You feel like you're at the helm. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So we find out what Peter is really struggling with is, how am I going to go be a pastor if they're going to crucify Jesus and persecute Christians? I'm not sure this is the life I want. And Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is it to you? You follow me. Peter doesn't want to die this way. This is not what he wants for his life. And I would propose to you that this is what it means to wrestle with whether or not your life is going to be a living sacrifice to God. The determining factor is not whether or not Peter wanted to be a pastor or he wanted to fish. It does not matter what Peter wants. If Peter loves Jesus, 
This is why this is a gospel issue. Peter's service to Jesus, the Lord himself connects to his profession of love for him in the first place. If you love me, you have to present your life a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And I think ultimately what we're asking here is, do I trust God with my own happiness? Do I trust God with my life? Do I trust God with my goals and with my ambitions? Do I trust Him or not? Folks, that is a question you've got to wrestle with. And maybe you did at one point and you're not wrestling with it anymore. Maybe like Jacob, you need to wrestle with the Lord a little bit more here. Maybe you need to be crippled yourself in some of these earthly ambitions that you have. Do you love me more than these? That's a tough question. And it's going to be really key to understanding spiritual gifts correctly. And we'll talk more about that next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. And as we close, I'll ask Steve and the ushers to come forward to administer the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, I love you. And I pray that I haven't said anything wrong. Um, it's not been my aim. And Help us to hear from your word rightly and to be challenged rightly. And Father, now we need your spirit to lead us and to do the convicting work that no man can do. Where we need to change, help us to change so that we can proclaim the greatness of who you are. A Savior who has died on the cross for us. Who's risen from the grave to promise us eternal life. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.